Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Now let me pray for us. Jesus, we know that when your word is read, when it's preached, that it's your voice we're hearing, and that we come to the fount of living water that can restore us, that can lead us and guide us. So Jesus, that's what we ask this morning, that you will lead us through your word, that you will bring us to righteousness and peace and hope. May your spirit do the work in us that needs to be done, and may we be ready and willing eager to hear, eager to apply. We pray this all in the beautiful and blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I had a, a friend in college who grew up playing soccer at a pretty competitive level, and uh, he was actually recruited to play at the Naval Academy, and um, he was accepted, he was going to play there, and the summer before, he was waking up at four in the morning every day to train, because that's when he would have to wake up to play soccer at the Naval Academy, and after about a week of doing that, said, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. And end up going to a completely different college. But to even be recruited to play at a D1 school, you have to play at a pretty high level. And I remember uh, my senior of college was the 2010 World Cup and watching World Cup games with him. And what was so interesting is that he actually knew some of the guys playing on the men's U.S. team because he had like played with them or against them in these like super elite club teams he grew up playing on. Like, I remember one guy, he was like, I can't believe this guy like made it this far. He was not that great in high school. 
But I remember him telling me something that stuck with me. He said this. He said, when you get to that level of any sport, pure athleticism does not get you far. So in, in, in most sports, you play on a high school basketball team, baseball team, soccer team, whatever, you have guys or girls, you know, girl sport, it, who are just so innately gifted. They don't have to train. They don't have to, like, work in the offseason. They just show up, and they can still play and even dominate. But he said, once you get to that level, everybody is insanely gifted. Everybody is just a monster athlete. And the, the difference is the people who are willing to put in the effort, who are disciplined and can train and work hard. Because athleticism is, is, is everyone's athletic like that. It's the same across the board. The difference is what people put into it. Now, in our text this morning, we have two different cities where Paul ministered. And the way that Luke sets out the story, he contrasts them. And he's doing this intentionally because what was same what was the same in both these cities was the gospel that Paul preached. He preached the same gospel in the same way, with the same urgency, but the outcomes were drastically different. In Thessalonica, at least the, the Jews in Thessalonica, uh, many, only a few of them believed. It was a very poor outcome. But in Berea, many believed. And the difference is that the Berean Jews came eager to hear God's word, whereas the Thessalonican Jews didn't and they missed it. They missed the opportunity for forgiveness and salvation and to meet their king. And the thing is, we're not talking about something as ultimately trivial as World Cup soccer. We're talking about eternal life and cosmic realities that have eternal consequences. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say this morning. Outline for us, I have just two points. First, receiving the word badly. Second, receiving the word eagerly. So first point, receiving the word badly. Again, just to recap, Paul has begun his second missionary journey. He's gone into southern Europe, basically northern, northern uh, Greece. He starts his ministry in the Roman colony of Philippi, where there is a big uproar. He's uh, brought before the city. He's beaten, uh, him and Silas, and then thrown in jail. And then God rescues him through this miraculous earthquake. And when he comes to this next city of Thessalonica, he's fresh off the heels of having been beaten publicly. Uh, it's interesting to compare this story with the letter of 1 Thessalonians, because Paul writes 1 Thessalonians only a couple months after he visits the city of Thessalonica. And so he's very much writing contemporaneously with what has happened. And so, for instance, when Paul writes 1 Thessalonians 2.2, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So to, to paint the scene here for you, Paul and Silas and their, and their companions show up at Thessalonica still bearing the marks of their beatings, the stripes on their back, the bruises on their body, and yet they're willing to start over again in a new city. And this brings us again to chapter, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Let me read this for us again. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. 
as did a great many devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. That would have been the Roman emperor. Saying, there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So again, coming from Philippi to Thessalonica, it would have been about 100 miles. Thessalonica was a major city. It was the capital of the province. The Roman orator Cicero called it the metropolis of Macedonia. And unlike Philippi, this city did have a synagogue. So as was Paul's custom, he starts in the synagogue. It's interesting, Luke gives us a little bit of info of, what, of how he would preach the gospel to Jews. And there were two parts. First, it says that he reasoned from the scriptures to try to convince them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. The Christ was the Jewish Messiah. The Jews were waiting for one to come. Of course, they viewed him as this great, they, they thought he was going to be this great military leader who would deliver them from the Roman Empire. But Paul is saying, no, 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 what scriptures teach is that the Christ had to suffer and had to die. It was necessary. That's, that was a hard truth for the Jews in Thessalonica to accept. That is still a hard truth for us to accept. And let me explain what I mean. Most people, when you tell them God loved the world enough to send his son to die so that we might know him, it, find that at least, even if they don't believe it, they, they understand how that is compelling and beautiful. A God sacrificing himself for humanity. Where it gets tough is when we say, no, but it was necessary for Jesus to die. My sin was bad enough that Jesus had to die? I mean, I, it, was, it was a beautiful act of God's love, but it was necessary? That's, that's where it starts sticking in our throats. Because to say that the cross was necessary, it's, it, does, it, it affirms two things. It affirms, one, how deep the stain of sin goes in the human heart. This is not a superficial blemish. It's something that, that has corrupted us in the deepest places. And it also affirms, second, that there is nothing we can do about it. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot erase the stain on our souls. Only God can save us. The cross was necessary. Jesus had to die. And Paul tries to argue that from the scriptures. It doesn't tell us what scriptures he looks at. Maybe he's going to Isaiah 52 and 53 or others. We don't know. But Paul first is arguing it was necessary that the Christ had to die, had to suffer and die. But secondly, he was arguing from the scriptures that it was also necessary for then the Christ to rise again. We don't just believe that Jesus forgives us of our sins and then kind of gives us a fresh start. And then it's like, all right, here you go. You're back to ground zero. Don't screw it up again. The idea is as we died with Jesus, because he lives, we live with him as well. Which means not only does he take all of our sin and remove it, he then gives us his life, new creations. You're a new person. Yeah, we still struggle with the old person. 
but you'll never be the same because Jesus rose from the grave. This is what Paul argues to these Thessalonican Jews from the scriptures, reasoning, persuading. This is the gospel. These two events, Christ's death and resurrection. Now there's much else we can say about Christianity, it's true. But these two events are the center of our faith. They are, if you remember from 1 Peter two weeks ago, they are the chief cornerstone of the building of the church and everything we believe, everything we do, Individually and as a church, it finds its meaning and its purpose by orienting itself back to these two events, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So this is the gospel that Paul preaches to these Thessalonians, but the reception, again, is pretty poor. Some believe, but most don't. And the ones who don't then turn on Paul out of their envy and their jealousy. It doesn't tell us why they're jealous. It does tell us a number of devout Greeks believed and joined Paul, the devout Greeks would have been, again, non-Jews, who were worshiping the God of the Old Testament. They hadn't fully converted to Judaism. And many of them leave, and it seems like they probably left the synagogue and joined Paul's Christian meetings. And so perhaps the Jews were jealous because everyone's leaving their group and now going to Paul's group. But either way, the Jews in Thessalonica, they turned to the state authorities, the city authorities. They used coercive power against Paul. And what we don't see in the Thessalonican Jews is any honest attempt to see if what Paul was saying was true. There's no attempt for them to go back to scriptures. Yeah, boy, this is not what we expected, but is this, is this really what the scriptures say? There's none of that. Instead, they reject Paul, they grow envious, and they resort to violence and, again, coercive state power to fight against Paul. This is receiving the word badly. Now, it's interesting the accusations they bring as Paul, and I want to camp on this for a second before we move to our second point, because it's a theme that we're starting to see throughout Acts. As Paul takes the gospel into, again, the Roman Empire, how Christians and Christianity interacted with a secular state power. So it's interesting the accusations they bring against Paul are very similar to the accusations that a whole different set of people brought against Paul in Philippi. What he says in, in, again, verses the second half of verse 6 to 7, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. Again, that would have been the Roman emperor. They're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they're saying, look, these men are revolutionaries. When it says that they're turned the world upside down, that has revolutionary overtones. It's like, let's hit the streets, comrade. Like that, they're, they're, they're trying to overthrow the system. And they're preaching this other king. That's sedition. Again, that, those are the accusations that land you dead in the Roman Empire. And it's interesting. Part of this accusation is completely false. But part of it is true. So part of it is false in that Paul never advocated for any kind of armed rebellion he was not interested in overthrowing the political order of his day. And we know this again from 1 Thessalonians, again written two months or so after this. Paul writes them in 1 Thess Thessalonians 4, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. In other words, it's like when we were with you, this is what we taught you. 
Be good citizens. Be model citizens. Mind your own business. Obey your authorities. I mean, if you're a governor, these are the people you want. People are just going to live a good life, live quietly. They're not trying to upset anything. Paul and his companions never advocated for armed rebellion or violent uprising, period, at all. That accusation is completely wrong. They are not overthrowing the social order of the day. But what was true is that they did proclaim another king. Now, the king they proclaimed is not quite what the Romans would have thought, because Jesus is not a king who advances his kingdom by the sword or by armed political power. Jesus advances his kingdom by the preaching of the gospel. As people hear of sin and grace and they turn to Jesus, Jesus conquers by conquering hearts. For now, one day he'll come back and then he will come in power. But for now, the kingdom advances as Jesus the king conquers hearts. But nonetheless, he is a king. He is an ultimate authority that we give our allegiance to. And so that part was true. But the Christians in Thessalonica, they had to wrestle through how did their identity as citizens of the Roman Empire play into their identities as citizens of the kingdom of God, where Christ is king. And that was not an easy thing for them to wrestle through. You know, um, you all have noticed this the last five to ten years have been particularly divisive in our country politically. I haven't been alive that long, so maybe it's always been like this, but this does seem to be unusual. And unfortunately, it's also been in our churches as well. That's the tragic part. But we shouldn't be surprised because what we see here is that this is going to be difficult to figure out. How do we navigate competing allegiances and that we're citizens of countries? How do we navigate the allegiance we give to a country versus the allegiance we give to Christ? It's not going to be easy. There's going to be a tension there. But I do think what the last five to ten years have shown us is that we as Christians have to do a lot of work to really think through what a genuinely Christian political witness is. Christians can be very honest, Christ-loving Christians, and yet have very pagan political witnesses. It is very possible. Now, I don't have time, obviously, in a sermon, nor to be, I think, appropriate in this setting to give a whole Christian political witness. Maybe that would be a, a good Sunday school mini-series, I don't know, in October, you know, if we want to make it real spicy. <laughs> Thanks, Chandler. <laughs> but I do want to say this. Any genuinely Christian political witness is going to have to balance two truths that move in opposite directions. The one truth is that we are in this world. Christ has called us to be in this world, ambassadors of Christ in this world. The Christian faith is not a call to withdraw into some kind of monastic community, although they're great for week-long retreats, which I'll be going on in a month. I'm very excited. But that's not how we're meant to live all of our life. We're meant to be in the world. So Paul writes to Philippians, in Philippians 1.27, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that when I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. I'm supposed to live lives worthy of the gospel before a watching world, in the midst of a watching world, not in kind of Christian enclaves with, you know, circling the wagons. We're meant to be in the world, and elsewhere in Scripture we're called to submit to our authorities. Romans 13, 1 Peter 3. Peter tells Christians to honor the emperor. I want to talk about some pretty vicious, violent, evil men. 
you know, Emperor Nero, who would light his garden parties by burning people alive. And Peter says, you, you need to honor your leaders. We're called to be in this world. That's the first truth, as ambassadors of Christ. But the second truth is at the same time, this world is not our home. Uh, and every authority in this world is derivative, which means it's not ultimate. Every authority, every political authority, every church authority, every human authority, is derivative of Christ's authority, who is ultimate. And so Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, this is talking about his disciples, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so yes, while we are, you know, we're, we're fully humans, members of all the human institutions that we're part of, we're members of the world, and yet at the same time, not really. This world is not our home. In one sense, yes, we're citizens of whatever country we live in, the United States or whatever country that might be. But at the same time, not really, because our citizenship is in heaven, in the kingdom of God. And those two truths, they move in opposite directions. And to be a genuinely Christian political witness, we have to be able to navigate between those. And anytime we lean one, too far one way or the other, we cease being, again, a genuinely Christian political witness. Now, I have two practical, I know that's very like, theoretical, so thank you for bearing with me. It's worth thinking through this stuff, and there's a whole lot more thinking to be done, by the way. But two practical outworkings. As we enter 2024, and, and, and we're entering a, another contentious presidential race, we're all so excited for this. It's going to be so much fun. Here's two practical outworkings of a truly Christian political witness. First, a Christian's allegiance will always, always, always be to Christ and his church than to any political party or any political ideology. This is obvious, but it's worth saying. Jesus did not die for the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Green Party, or the Independents. He died for the church. And so as those who belong to Christ, our first allegiance must be to his church. Let me give you an analogy. I'm sure you all follow British politics very closely. Um, I do not either, but I do subscribe to The Economist, which is a British publication, and so of course they always feel the need to talk about their own country, and so I, I learn a little bit here and there. Uh, a few years ago, Brita Britain left their European Union. It's called the Brexit. You've probably heard that word. And it was massively controversial. I mean, when you talk to people from Britain, it's like that was their, their like, you know, 2020 election. Just divided Brit from Brit, incredibly heated, incredibly vitriolic. And it was an important thing. I mean, it, it, it affects even us in America, what happens in Europe. But imagine if we in America started like engaging in civil war over our disagreements about British politics. Some of us are saying, no, Britain should have remained part of the European Union. And the other side is saying, no, leaving was the right thing, and we're like engaging in open warfare. It'd be like, that would be ridiculous. Like, sure, let's have disagreements. It's worth debating. But like, we're going to engage in civil war in our country over political differences in another country? Are we gone crazy? But that's exactly what Christians do when churches split 
over secular political differences. When we forget that our citizenship is in heaven, and sure, we can have disagreements, and let's have those disagreements, and have them in grace and love and truth, but we're going to split over differences in a country that is not your country. First practical outworking, our allegiance must always be to Jesus and his church. Second political outworking, if we want to have a distinctly, uniquely, genuinely Christian political witness, we have to distinguish between biblical moral commands and policies, political policies. Let me explain. Letter of James. James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled in God's eyes is to visit the orphan and widow in their distress. In other words, you, you won't have a religion that God cares about, that he finds pleasing. Care for the orphan and the widow. And of course, it doesn't just mean then you can ignore everyone else. The point was, in, in the ancient world, those were the two most uh, vulnerable categories of people. And so what James is saying, by the power of the Spirit, is if you want to have a religion worth anything, if you want to please God, care for the most vulnerable in your society, that is a moral command. We cannot disagree on that. Or we, or we disregard Scripture. What that doesn't tell us, though, is how do we live that out in a complex, pluralistic, modern society? It doesn't tell us whether we should have a conservative policy or a progressive policy. The Bible does not tell us whether we should have a flat tax, everyone pays the same percentage, or we should have a progressive tax, the poor pay more percentage-wise, or a regressive tax, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the rich pay more percentage-wise, or regressive, the poor pay more percentage-wise. It doesn't, there's just, I mean, I, look, it's just not in here. It just doesn't tell us. There's a moral command, care for the vulnerable. How we live that out in a complex society, that's, the Bible doesn't ordain one way or the other. But yet here's the thing, as Christians, we rarely split over the moral differences. It's usually these political policy differences. Again, scripture commands us to care for the foreigner and the, and the stranger among you. It does not tell us how do we balance concerns of national security with caring for the stranger and the foreigner among you. It just doesn't tell us. So here's my point. Again, as Christians, we who are citizens of the kingdom of God, we who are not of this world, like, we, we unite over these moral commands, we, 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 but we can disagree on exactly how that is lived out, and again, in a complex, pluralistic, modern society. Let's have those debates. Yeah. You never know, someone who disagrees with you, like, they may change your mind, or at the very least, they'll make you think harder about your beliefs, and it'll be a beautiful thing. And then one day, we'll stand before Jesus, and he'll tell us who was right. That's my, that's my encouragement as we enter this political season. Again, uh, our allegiance is always to Jesus and his church. We've got to distinguish between moral commands of Scripture and the way that's worked out in a complex political system. That's our first point, receiving the word badly. Second, receiving the word eagerly. Let me, let me read verses 10 to 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, 
They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul leaves Thessalonica. It's about 50 miles to Berea. Berea was a much smaller city than Thessalonica. It was kind of an out-of-the-way place. But the Jews at Berea received the word of God in a very different way. And the outcome is also very different. Now again, we're not told how Paul ministers in this city, but we can assume it's the same way he ministered in Thessalonica because if he had done something drastically different, like if the idea was like, hey, Paul preached a dud in Thessalonica, but then he blew it up in Berea, like Luke would tell us that. But he doesn't tell us what Paul did, and so the assumption is, look, he's doing the exact same thing he did in Thessalonica, but the result is completely different. And why is that? Well, again, look at how the Bereans receive it in verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And as a result, verse 12, many of them, therefore, believed. And so until Jesus comes back, the Berean church will always be known as kind of an illustration of what it means to take the word of God seriously. In fact, there are churches that name themselves after the Bereans. I've seen a church called Berean Baptist Church. But in the Berean church, we're given two examples to follow and a promise to claim. Again, two examples for us to follow and a promise to claim. So first example is that they were willing to be confronted by the word. So they're more noble-minded. What is Luke getting at there? He's saying this doesn't translate super well into our very democratic, egalitarian society. The idea is like they had the characteristics of someone who was kind of high-born, who wasn't swayed by petty prejudices, who was open to considering reasoned argument and debate. In other words, they're, they're willing to be confronted by the word. The danger when we approach scripture, and this is always a danger, is that we bring kind of our ideas of what we already think and we search the scriptures for verses that kind of buttress our beliefs. Rather than coming for the scriptures and just say, what does this mean? I want to know. I'm going to submit my will before the scriptures. Even when that confronts us, even when it makes us uncomfortable. You know, the Bereans could have searched the scripture and just tried to find proof texts. To, dis- to disprove Paul. That would have been a lot more comfortable. It's very uncomfortable to find out you're wrong about something, especially when it's something as personal and as important as our faith. But the Bereans were willing to be confronted by the word of God. They were open-minded, not in the sense that they were willing to consider anything. It's a great G.K. Chesterton quote. Opening the mind is like opening your mouth. You only open it in order to close it again on something but they were willing to consider anything the scriptures might have to say to them. So this is the first example that they give us. They were willing to be confronted by the word. 
Second example, they received the word of God eagerly. Again, which is so fascinating uh, is Paul does the same thing in both cities, and the outcomes are so totally different, and the differences in how the people came, what their expectations were. It doesn't tell us in Thessalonica. Maybe, you know, they came to the synagogue that Saturday when Paul was preaching, because that's what they, did, that's what they had done since they were little. And that's what you did on, on the Sabbath. You went to synagogue. Or maybe they came that Saturday because uh, that's where their friends were. Or they were looking to make friends. And so they were looking to hang out and have their community. Or, or, or maybe they came because they liked the music or they liked the preaching or whatever it was. But the point is they weren't coming for the word. And so when the word was preached, even when it was the good news that could save them, that could bring them into relationship with the God who is, they missed it because they weren't ready. That's not why they were there. In contrast, Bereans came to their synagogue that Saturday because they wanted to hear God speak through his word. And God spoke to them. Brothers and sisters, I want to make an agreement with you. Here's my agreement. My part of the agreement is that I will, as, as kind of the primary preacher at Vine Street, I will work as hard as I can to study God's word to understand it, to preach it as well, as compellingly as I can, not to be clever, not to try to impress you, but just lay before you as clearly as possible what God's word says and how I think it applies to us. That's my side of this agreement I want to make with you this morning. Your side of the agreement is that you will labor to come, eager to receive God's word, not because I have anything to say, but because I'm going to God willing, bring before you God's word. And here's the thing. If we want to take this agreement seriously, there's going to be preparation on both sides. My preparation will be obvious. If I don't show up prepared, if I don't do anything before the call to worship next Sunday, or actually in two Sundays, uh, you will all know, and it will not be pretty. But there's preparation for you guys as well to come prepared to eagerly receive the word. And it, it actually begins Saturday night. I had a pastor in college who used to tell us crazy college kids would stay up till two in the morning playing video games. He would say, guys, guys, Saturday night, bed by 11 to the glory of God, which you thought was so cool. Um, anyways, I won't get into that. Or if you're me, bed by nine for the glory of God. And the point is like, you know, some of us have to work late, things happen. But for the rest of us, like if we're staying up till midnight or one, we shouldn't expect to be able to receive the word of God eagerly when our brains are foggy. It begins Saturday night, but it continues Sunday morning. What's the best way to come prepared to eagerly receive God's word? It's, it's being in God's word. Wake up early on Sunday and get in God's word. Pr spend time in prayer. If you wake up, roll out of bed, jump in your car, come flying to church and run up the stairs 10 minutes late, you probably won't be prepared to eagerly receive the word of God on Sunday morning. And it doesn't stop with Sunday, by the way. Receiving the word eagerly doesn't just mean preparing and then just taking everything I say as if it's, you know, nectar of the gods. It means taking it home and then thinking on it and going to the scriptures yourself and seeing if what I said was true. A lot of times we listen to sermons this way. It's like, I like what he said here. I don't like what he said here. Let's move on. But instead, if, you know, we should, this is what the Bereans did. They examined the scriptures daily to see if this was so. Look, 
I'm fallible. I may get it wrong. Take the scriptures home and see if what I said is true. If I say something that bothers you, don't just say, well, Mike's wrong. Search the scriptures. And if I got it wrong, come tell me. I want to know. That's my agreement I want to make with you all. I will do my best. Beloved, I will do my best. As fallible and weak as I am, to week in and week out, present the word of God in all its clarity. And you come ready to hear God's word. And Jesus will be honored, and his church will be built up. And the kingdom will advance. So these are two examples we're given. Again, a willingness to be confronted by the word of God and preparing to come eagerly to hear the word of God. But these are examples that are given to us with a promise. And it's, not a, it's an unspoken promise. But the idea is, if you do these, this will happen. Because the Bereans do this. And again, verse 12. Many of them, therefore, believed. Because of how they came to the word, they believed. Now, why do they believe? Well, because as they searched the scriptures, as they eagerly received the word, they encountered Jesus. That's, that, that's the promise. If we're willing to be confronted by the word, if we eagerly receive it, we're going to meet Jesus. Because the Bible is not like this interesting encyclopedia of random ancient historical facts and the theological trivia. Like, oh, I want to know about creation, so I'm going to look up C. The Bible's a story. And it's about one person, it's Jesus. Which means everything in Scripture is pointing to the promise of forgiveness of sins and salvation that was found in Jesus alone. Which means, why do we allow ourselves to be confronted by the Word even when it's uncomfortable? Why do we prepare ourselves, waking up Sunday morning, to come eagerly to receive the Word? It's because if we do that, we're going to see Jesus. Not with the eyes, your physical eyes, or some mystical vision. But as you study and hear and receive the promises of God and begin to see how they're fulfilled in Jesus, you're going to encounter the living Christ. And that's what we want. By the way, beloved, this is why you will never get to an age where you can move past the scriptures. You'll never get to a time where like, you just know him so well you don't need him anymore. Because we will always need Jesus. And we encounter him through his word. That's why we read the scriptures every day. That's why we're willing to be confronted by them. It's why we come eager to receive the word because in the scriptures we see Jesus. We come into his presence. We grow in our knowledge and our love of him. We're strengthened in our faith in him. And we hunger. In the word, we hunger for the day when we will see our Lord face to face. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will make yourself known through your word. I pray that you will speak through the words I've said as incomplete and inadequate and imperfect as they are. 
I pray that as we come to your word that you will be merciful to us and you will show us yourself because we need you. And if we don't have you, where else can we turn? Make us your own. We love you with all our heart. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen.